Oh, yes. That was, that was lovely. Okay, it was something. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, we're going to start with a troubling subject. Sorry to do that to you right off the bat, but here it is. Um, we're going to talk about the role that the Bible played in the justification for slavery in America. Now, there were many, many arguments that supporters of slavery used to justify slavery, um, and religious arguments from the Bible were a critical strategy because of how generally Christian the United States was and the United States South in particular. The Bible was used also on the side of those who wanted to abolish slavery, who wanted to end it. And then enslaved peoples started reading the Bible for themselves, and they came to their own conclusions about what the Bible spoke and said about their situation. So the role that the Bible played in the great debate around slavery was was complex. But in general, the Bible was widely perceived as being in support of slavery. And that's because there are over 200 passages in the Bible that directly or indirectly support the institution of slavery. Some of those passages are direct quotes from God. And God is speaking to God's people and giving commands. Here are some examples. This is from Leviticus 25. Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. Okay, this is God speaking through Moses to the people of Israel. From them you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country, and they will become your property. You can pass them on to your children as inherited property and can make them slaves for life. Another one, Exodus 21. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two since the slave is their property. Slave supporters or supporters of slavery were quick to point out that God doesn't say you can't have slavery. It's an assumed institution around which God is issuing commands about what you may or may not do. So it's an assumed thing that will, of course, exist. Jumping to the New Testament, a couple examples. From Colossians 3, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. This is so earnest. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. In Ephesians 6, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. So those were written in the generations immediately following Jesus. In the early Christians, when they were considering the teaching of Jesus, they did not think, or the majority view was, that they did not believe Jesus' teachings meant the end of slavery. They thought slavery was consistent with the teachings of Jesus. It's just slaves had to obey their masters as though they were obeying Jesus Christ, their Lord. 
Now, these passages and the other 200 passages in the Bible became quite useful as weapons in the fight to preserve slavery. The supporters of slavery said, the Bible's on our side. And the Bible is the perfect, infallible word of God. It is trustworthy in all matters of faith and practice. And you can't argue with the plain reading of the Bible on this one. It is just obvious. God is in support of slavery. The Bible tells us so. Now, the many Christians, as I mentioned, who wanted to abolish slavery had their own set of Bible passages that they referenced. Now, what's interesting, though, is that they largely saw the Bible in the same way that the supporters of slavery saw it. That is, as the perfect, infallible word of God, good for all faith and practice. It's just that they saw different verses and would say, these are the ones that that really say what God actually thinks. But there was another strategy that some adopted in the fight against slavery. Instead of referencing the Bible and trying to prove from the Bible what God thought, they instead would just look at the very real experience, the impact, the, the actual results of slavery, and they pointed out how it was bad, (laughs) and therefore contradicted the God of love. Here's a quote from Frederick Douglass, formerly enslaved person who then became writer, speaker, activist, states person. Between the Christian of this land, he said, and the Christian of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Woo! Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. Notice, there is not one reference to the Bible in this argument. He is simply saying slavery is wicked and it has nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, as much as people wanted to go there, with Frederick Douglass, there was still this vexing problem. What do we do with the Bible? What do we do with it? Is it okay to contradict the 200 verses? The clear and plain reading? Are we contradicting God who spoke? If slavery is truly so wicked and wrong, why are these verses in the Bible at all? This is supposed to be God's perfect, infallible word. And if there's a conflict between the scripture on one hand and what we feel in our bones about what is good and right, what do we trust? That's our question this morning. We're continuing our teaching series called Creating Sanctuary, and we're exploring a number of the values about what makes sanctuary sanctuary. 
And this morning, we're going to consider sanctuary's use of the Bible. How do we view and approach the Bible? How do we use it? What's it for? And especially, what do we do when we find some troubling passages whose clear and plain reading seems to contradict what we just know is good and right? Okay? Now, I began with that um, troubling, as I said, uh, example of American slavery because it, it illustrates that massive tension and difficulty when the Bible says one thing, but our discernment about what's good says another. And what do we do? We feel caught. Now, here at Sanctuary, we use the Bible all the time, okay? We, uh, we preach from the Bible Sunday after Sunday. The Bible plays an enormous role in our preaching and worship. Our teachings are deeply, deeply formed by our reading and understanding of the Bible, uh, we have also in our beliefs statement, a very brief document, which you can check out on our website, uh, there's a paragraph on the Bible that was written by people from within sanctuary. It's a lovely, lovely paragraph, so go check it out. Many of you are, have, have read it already. Uh, and so, as is our custom, at this point I want to turn now to the Bible. And we're going to look at a story from the life of Jesus that gets to the heart of the tension around the Bible and what it's for. Okay? Sound good? I hope so, because that's what we're doing. (laughs) Um, Okay, here we go. Mark chapter 2. And Jay, if you can control these slides, that will help me. Thank you. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees, these are the religious authorities, said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which it's not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for humankind. Not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether Jesus would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And Jesus said to the man who had a withered hand, Come forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good? Or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians, their archenemy. It's Democrats and Republicans, united. Oh my gosh. <laughs> conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Okay. We have two back-to-back stories here that show Jesus challenging the understanding of what's acceptable on the Sabbath. Now, at the time, 
The Sabbath was the day of rest instituted by God in the laws of Moses. It's one of the big ones. It's in the Ten Commandments, okay? So here it is from the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. Okay, this sounds really straightforward. Work six days, rest on the seventh. But... It's kind of funny when you start to think about it, like what exactly constitutes work, okay? So everyone at this time had animals, or mostly everyone cared for animals. Like, can you feed your animals on the Sabbath, or is that work? You know, putting some dog food out, I don't know. Um, Can you wash dishes on the Sabbath, or is that work? Can you make your kids wash dishes on the Sabbath? (laughs) Can you buy stuff? Like, what if that means the seller is working? Uh Uh-oh, right? So it becomes kind of complicated. And people were asking, like, well, what exactly constitutes work? And the religious authorities said, we are so glad you asked. We would like to tell you exactly what is good and bad on the Sabbath. And they did. And if you broke the rules, you were punished. Now, in this story, it's actually Jesus' disciples, his students, who are breaking the rule on the Sabbath. And it's one of those moments where the parents get blamed for how badly the kids are behaving. It's not fair, I know. But the disciples, it's a lovely afternoon. They're walking through a grain field, and they're plucking little heads of grain and snacking on it like it's popcorn. And the Pharisees see this, and they're like, you can't do that. Because plucking heads of grain is harvesting, and you can't harvest on the Sabbath. Jesus responds to their uh, question by asking them (laughs) if they're familiar with a certain story of King David from the Bible, okay? Now, this is, he is throwing some serious shade right now, okay? Like, he's basically saying, have you ever read the Bible? I mean, seriously, have you read it? Because they they would say, "Uh, yeah, we have it memorized. (laughs) Like, literally, they could recite the passage back to Jesus that he's referring to. And the story is of David, at the time, who's on the run. He's running for his life. And he has no provisions. He stops at a place where the bread of the presence is. It's the special bread. He needs food. And it's an emergency. And he's hungry. And the priest is like, I just have the bread of presence. Uh, You know, you can't have it. Why can't he have it? Because the Bible tells us so. There is a code in the Bible about the bread of presence, that no one may eat it except the priests who are ceremonially clean. So David can't have the bread, except he gets it. (laughs) They break the rule. They break the rule because it will serve David's good. It will be good for him and his friends. Then Jesus, so quoting that passage, he then quotes or says this. The Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, there's good reason to be puzzled if you're reading this going, uh, not sure, because there's a lot happening, okay, in these couple sentences. The first thing Jesus seems to be saying is that the Sabbath law was given to serve humans and human flourishing. 
That's the point of the law. That's the point of the whole Bible. It was given to help people, to help people flourish and do good in life. Not the other way around. Which means that if and when a law from the Bible ceases to serve a certain person or people group, it has to go. That's exactly what happens in the story of David. David, there's a law against him taking the bread, but this would actually be really helpful and good for David. So guess what? We break the law. Woohoo! Okay. I feel like I need that Beavis and Butthead laugh right there. Breaking the law. Breaking the law. Gen Xers, anyone. Beavis and Butthead. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, so then Jesus says the second line. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title of himself. So he's speaking in the third person here, basically saying... I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And by extension, Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of all laws. And I am the Lord of the Bible. The Bible is not Lord of me. The laws of Scripture are not Lord of me. I am the Lord of the Bible. I don't answer to the Bible, I answer to me. I'm the authority. And I get to say what is good for humankind, not the Bible. Can you hear me in the back? (laughs) Jesus is not messing around here. And you can hear all my emphasis, okay, for good reason. This is one of the clearest moments of conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities. One of the clearest. It's at the end of Mark chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3. We get to chapter 16. And guess what? They kill him because of this conflict. It's about authority, and it's about what is the Bible for? Here's a chart I created that summarizes the implied contrasting views of the Bible that we see here, okay? So first of all, what's the Bible for? The religious authorities see it as a perfect standard of God's law that we can then make applicable in every situation and tell people exactly what to do and what not to do. Jesus sees the Bible as a great gift that helps us in the the point of all this, which is God with us. And it serves human flourishing. It helps us access the God who is with us, the God who is on our side, hoping and wishing and wanting us to step into God's love for God and for humankind more and more. That's it. Now, who's sacrificed? All right, that's the question I came up with here. From the perspective of the religious authorities, the Bible must be defended. It must be defended at all costs, including any costs to humanity, no matter how severe, because that Bible is that perfect standard. So we must uphold and defend it. It represents God, after all. And God needs to be defended and honored and obeyed. Jesus is saying, I got something alternate. When the Bible seems to contradict what's good for people, We pick people every time. 
We pick David on the run. That's what we pick. And it's we who have to die to ourselves and to our ready-made interpretations of what the Bible is saying. That's what has to go. And then finally, who gets to say? (laughs) This is my favorite. The religious story is like, we could say, we're in charge. We got the power. Who's got the power? We got the power. And Jesus is like, "Uh uh-uh, no, I do. I do. I get to say. I get to say. I am Lord, and I get to say what's good for people. The next story that comes right after that first one perfectly illustrates the conflict here. Okay, so Jesus Uh, Again, on the Sabbath, he's in the synagogue. The religious authorities are now watching him to see if he will heal on the Sabbath. He's not supposed to heal. That's breaking the law of working on the Sabbath. You cannot heal. God forbid. So Jesus offers them a multiple choice test. Jesus, he's such a kind teacher, isn't he? I mean, he just like, I mean, in a multiple choice test, and get, get this, it only has two answers. This is so easy. You got this, you guys. You got it. I'm with you. Okay? Here it is. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to A, do good, or B, do harm? Okay. Okay, if you phone a friend, we can eliminate options. Okay? Okay, and he rephrases it. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to A, save life, or B, kill? Okay, pick A. It's it's A. Okay, the religious authorities are silent. They can't answer this question. They cannot or will not go with Jesus because they cannot sacrifice their own view of the perfect, irrefutable, infallible word of God for the sake of humankind. And it's easier for them to blame, to reject, to then conspire to kill the person they're arguing with than to change and to behold what might be just good for people. Healing on the Sabbath. Jesus is angry. The writer of the gospel tells us that Jesus is angry. Now, this is remarkable because we actually don't receive the records of Jesus' emotion all that often. We can often guess based on what's happening in the story But here it is made explicit. Jesus is angry. And he is grieved by their hardness of heart. This is exactly the dynamic that played into the Bible being used to justify slavery in America. Supporters of slavery willing to literally sacrifice human beings for the sake of upholding their way of life, and they use the Bible as the ultimate divine weapon in maintaining the status quo. And so Frederick Douglass pointed out so well 
that they abandoned Jesus to uphold their terrible, cruel religion. Friends, Jesus comes to us today with the same choice. We are invited to follow Jesus and to take on and take up his approach to how to use or not use the Bible. When our understanding of the Bible gets in the way of what's going to be good for humans, we have to let it go. We have to change. We have to let go of our understanding of the Bible. One of the places in my own life where I've uh, seen this conflict play out is in the, um, I'm going to use this phrase, and it's clunky and odd, forgive me, but it's in the role of women in the church. And I, like even saying that just sounds kind of batty <laughs> to me today. But anyway, the role, so yeah, it's probably obvious here at Sanctuary, um, having 80 as our senior pastor, but we do not think God is in favor of restrictions in the church based on gender, okay? But here's the thing. When you look at the Bible, there are some verses, actually quite a few, that seem to be in their clear and straightforward reading uh, pretty strong in their restrictions on women in the church. And for me, I went through a phase about 20 years ago when I was reading a lot of theology and Bible interpretation books around men's and women's roles. Um, And I read some books that offered a sort of rigid approach. And they would say, you know, there are, from these sets of verses in the Bible, there are some very clear restrictions placed on women. And so women can do X, Y, Z in the church. Men can do these sets of, of activities. Okay? And again, this is all according to the Bible, the Bible which says some rather unflattering things about women. It says, for example, that women are more easily deceived than men. Sorry. Um, which, by the way, women inherited from Eve, who was deceived rather than Adam in the Garden of Eden and that, that drama. It says that women should submit to their husbands. And it also, the Bible also says that in church, men and only men can be leaders and elders and that women need to be silent. So I dare someone to quote 80 in that passage (laughs) in 1 Timothy 2. Um, Now, there are, to be fair, a good number of Bible passages and stories that seem to contradict that. Bible verses that show women leading and preaching and teaching, women not submitting, praise God, and women uh, are the ones who come and save the day and rescue everybody, okay? But the books and theology stuff I was reading at this time, a long time ago, they made it sound like those stories are more the exception to the rule and that we know from the Bible, God's perfect infallible rule, what the prescribed gender roles are in house and in church, Now, it was a short time when I was playing around with these ideas, but I had some conversation with some friends about this journey, and um, a lot of them were women friends, and um, they did not appreciate me testing out (laughs) these ideas, which, you know, this is crazy. Like, to me, it was like an idea I'm playing around with, and that had some stakes, but obviously not as much stake as the women who I was friends with. And they pointed out how convenient it was 
to have a tradition controlled by men using a Bible written by men to maintain a status quo that favored men. <laughs> I said, yeah, huh, that is convenient. Um, hmm. But more than that, they pointed out to me how painful it is to have the Bible routinely used as a weapon, literally threatening them with God's disfavor if they broke the rules, if they were to advocate for another role than the one assigned to them 2,500 years ago in a context different than our own, it would go badly for them. And from their perspective, these rules were causing them a lot of harm. Fortunately, I was able to listen to my friends. And I did not take on that as part of my own philosophy or approach to the Bible. But here's the thing. At the time, the way I got there was through finding other Bible passages to appeal to. I was still functioning out of the idea that the Bible is the ultimate authority. And so I had to find verses to back up my position, which I did that felt satisfying to me. Now, I'd like to think that I have journeyed more and more towards Jesus' perspective when we saw that chart and the differences, right? That I'm, I'm adopting Jesus' vision of God with us, of humanity, and that we look first at what is good for humans with God. What is that? And then we figure out the rest from there. This is the choice for all of us today. The Bible can be and is a great gift to us. Week after week here at Sanctuary, it inspires us towards a faith that is alive and vibrant. We strive to be a community marked by love, love for God, love for people. We look at the God of liberation and we chase after that vision of who and what God is and where God is leading us. And the Bible We can come to it, friends. We can come to it freely and non-anxiously because the Bible ain't the Lord. Hallelujah. God is God. That is the gospel. God is God. God is the Lord. It ain't the Bible. And so if the Bible says stuff that we find kind of puzzling or alarming or we don't know what to do with it, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with all of you and you're saying the same thing every day. I don't know what to do with the Bible. I'm like, I know, join the club. None of us do. (laughs) I mean, we're working on it. But guess what? (laughs) We are in good company. We are with Jesus. Jesus didn't have the Bible as the ultimate authority. He had God as the ultimate authority. And we are siding with Jesus. We are going forward with Jesus. We are looking to Jesus for our salvation, our well-being, our vision of human flourishing. And yeah, the Bible, a great gift. When it's confusing and alarming, we'll work on it. But we can celebrate it for what it is in its right place. But first and foremost, it is God. And we are going to choose life with God. Amen. We'll transition to communion and worship. So invite the worship team to come forward. Let me read the word.